1: Hello, and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. This week on the show, our guest is Mike Zanni. And Mike, among many things, is the author of the brand new book, The Science of Dream Teams, How Talent Optimization Can Drive Engagement, Productivity, and Happiness. Now, you see, that last part is why I wanted to have Mike on the show. Yes, I do care about talent optimization. In fact, it's most of what my career is. Things like engagement and productivity are what I've done for the past seven, eight years. But as we all know, the reason this podcast started was how to find happiness at work. And so I wanted to talk to Mike about how do we do that? How do we build that? How do we find it? And so that's what we talk about, among other things. Now, why, Mike? Well, aside from this wonderful book, Mike is the CEO of The Predictive Index, which is a talent optimization platform. And now this platform is special, right? It uses over 60 years of proven science and software to help businesses design high-performing teams and cultures. So what I was asking Mike about is what makes a high-performing team and culture, and then, more importantly, how does that culture help us, every individual, with our work happiness. I really liked where the conversation went. Mike's an interesting guy. Aside from all of this, he is also the co-founder and partner at Phoenix Strategy Investments, a private investment fund. He's an avid sailor, and he was coach of the 1996 U.S. Olympic team. Oh, and by the way, he has his bachelor's degree from Brown and his MBA from Harvard. Who does all this? Who coaches the Olympics and goes to Brown and Harvard? What kind of person is this? That's why you listen to the show. And I just want to say, if you like it, reach out to us, tell a friend, and don't forget you can support us, patreon.com smartpeoplepodcast smart people podcast. Because listen, I'm going to tell you this now, inside scoop, we are going back to weekly episodes. That's right. In the next few weeks, we are going to be releasing every week. Now, why does this matter? Well, if you are a Patreon member, you can ask our guests questions. Now that we're going to have weekly episodes, you're going to have access to even more guests for as little as $2 a month, patreon.com slash smart people podcast. And speaking of Patreon, I have to give a shout out to our newest Patreon supporters, I might get this name wrong. It just happened. I will be reaching out to this person. So if you hear this, I'm sorry, but I think it's Gil- Gilles or Gilles. Thank you so much for your incredible support. Also, thank you to Da J. So, our newest Patreon supporters, you're the best. For everyone else, we'd love to have you over. Our community is growing and it's allowing us to do these cool things such as weekly episodes. It's all because of you. All right, let's turn it over to Mike as we talk about happiness at work and his new book, The Science of Dream Teams. Enjoy. Mike, thanks so much for joining me.
2: Chris, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So listen, let's start with this. You were an Olympic coach. I don't even know, how does one get there? It's like getting to the Olympics seems really hard but how do you coach Olympians?
2: I was in the scene I was uh, you know a, I tried out for the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona and did not make the team I was contemplating being an athlete for 96 and I really didn't enjoy raising money to sail. it was that, that, that trade-off really wasn't good for me I, mm. I felt It it somehow changed the sailing for me. So I decided to make money during the quadrennium, the four-year period uh, between 92 and 96, coaching. And I knew a lot of the athletes that I was coaching that were trying out for the Olympics. And the reason I was asked to be an Olympic coach was because three of the four athletes that I was coaching uh, in in the private sector qualified for the Olympic team. So they said, well, you've got a lot of athletes on the team. You should be uh, one of the accredited coaches for the
1: U.S. sailing team. What do you take away from that experience? I mean, it's always fun to ask because out of, out of the th- tens of thousands of people listening, um, maybe one other person, maybe if we're lucky, you know. So what do you take away from an experience like that?
2: Being around athletes that are that good is, is there's a lot of romance around it. It's, it's in, the, the performance and the outcomes are, are really impressive, even intoxicating. So there's so much to talk about. But what I, what I learned, and this is, I started going on the people journey back then because each of those athletes was also really quirky. And mm. I had to modify myself as a teacher, as a coach, as a, a sounding board so that I could get the most out of them. And I didn't just apply my style to, to them. I had to understand their style and sort of modify myself. And I think that's I think that's true of education. you know a good teacher teaches a subject one way. a great teacher will modify to make sure the all the students can learn and I think that's the same with coaching and I, I think it's the same with managers. you know great managers modify themselves so they get the best out of their people
1: so you bring that up, making the shift from coaching Olympians and being in athletics to what you do now, working with managers, working with organizations, optimizing talent. We're going to get into that. couple of questions there. The first is you have an extremely impressive, I might even say what we vet for here on Smart People Podcast, um, you know, educational background. And I don't want to misquote it, but I remember Harvard and Brown. Is that right? Harvard and Brown. But I, I okay. am a
2: Naval Academy dropout. So I've got that going for me as well.
1: <laughs> so how do you feel those two things, your educational background and then your coaching background, set you up or did not set you up to be where you are today, running a company, um, you know, being an innovator and working with large corporations?
2: After the 96 Olympics, um, it was 330 days on the road that year. You know, I, I actually sublet my own apartment. I did not need it. It was, it was living in a duffel bag. And I realized this is not going to end well you know, I, I will not have, you know, meet the woman of my dreams and, and have a family. So I decided to work for uh, a, a manufacturer, join business in, in in the marine industry. So I was using my skills and knowledge of the marine industry. And it was three years of learning business. And it was the first time I was ever as excited about something as I was sailing, you know, the competition of sailing. And you know, three years of business in a small manufacturer does not does not make uh, you know uh, an an amazing learning experience. You know, I learned a lot. I had a great mentor in Chip Johns, who was my first my first boss. But I, I decided to go to apply to business school as a trade school, not because I needed an MBA, because someone says you can't get the big bucks if you don't have these letters. It was really let's go to a let's go to a trade school and learn the trade of business. And the marine industry did not exactly have great examples or modeling of world class business. It's sort of a niche niche little industry. So I applied to three business schools and and got rejected from two and was lucky enough to get into Harvard Business School. And you're like, what?
1: Yeah, wait, wait. I thought that they were the ones doing the rejecting. <laughs>
2: One would think. I I, I really think that there was, I have a wingnut background, you know, you know, sailor sailing coach. I was trained as a ah. geochemist. So maybe one, their classes are large and, and maybe they decided to put a little bit of spice in the stew. And mm. I was the lucky, lucky person to, to, to get in there with, with sort of a, a different type of background. And I, I consider, I, I met my wife there. I met my business partner, my business model Half of our first investors came from there. So I, I feel very fortunate uh, that it changed my life so much that someone, you know, in the hallowed halls made a, a bet on someone who didn't probably belong.
1: A lot of Harvard grads say they don't belong, but I still, I, I don't know about that. Okay. Two things there. One is, um, I know we talked a little bit before hit and record, and I want to talk about this. How do you feel, you know, a lot of times, especially on this podcast, sometimes I tend to fetishize these, uh, you know, Ivy league schools and everything, but you said something interesting about what you look for in people that work at your company. And I think it's just good to hear sometimes, how do you value formal education versus other characteristics in a professional environment?
2: We use, we use this model called head heart briefcase when we when we look at individuals for the hire. And the briefcase is your curriculum vitae. That's all the things you've done over your life, your resume, if you will. And people almost universally overweight the briefcase. They they overweight education, they overweight the fact that you worked at a company like ours in a department that we're hiring for. So it sounds something like you've done customer service at three companies that look like ours. You've had a nice progression in customer service. We want you to do customer service here. And you should look at the briefcase, especially on skilled, on skilled positions. But people underweight the head and the heart because they're overweighting the briefcase. And in the head, we're talking about you know, behavioral traits, cognitive capabilities, how quickly you learn. In the heart, your, your drive, things like grit. Your passion for the business, uh, cultural fit. So if you're going to upweight head and heart, you have to downweight briefcase. So I'm not as enamored when someone comes with you know the Harvard Business School, uh, you know, and I, I appreciate what they've gone through. I can ask more pointed questions about their experience, but. We don't have a lot of Harvard MBAs running around our halls. We have a lot of people with varied backgrounds. And I would say that that education gets a, a little bit of a short change with my business partner and I.
1: There's a lot that I love about that. One, it resonates with me just when I look back on my career, i tended to follow my heart, then ask my head, can you do it? Not have you done it? And I, at this point I found if I want to, there's not much I can't learn. But here's one thing I I still struggle with. I find that in many organizations, and I've worked in plenty, um, that they say that they want that, but they don't necessarily give you the runway to screw up and learn. So if you say, look, I'm going to hire you for your passion and your characteristics and all these things, you you, you have to be intelligent, but you don't have to have specific experience because we know you can gain that experience. But then when they come in, you assign them something and expect them to be able to do it without recognizing it. Do you know what I'm getting at? I, I just find it hard because I'm sure you've experienced the people who you probably want to hire, have a strong desire to execute extremely well, right? It's hard to have that desire, not have the specific background and not be giving, given mentoring or coaching on those things. Does that make sense?
2: It, it, it does make sense. And I ask a lot of my employees the, the question, I, I consider it like, okay, so we are in an episode of Lost. We're stuck on a desert island, a deserted island. Who in our company, in our, in the 150 and 200 people that we have, would you recruit to do the job that you're looking for? Because so many people sort of want to go out and get this shiny object, which is grass is always greener, and say, no, you know 200 people. There's almost every personality profile and skill set represented there. Who would you go cherry pick? Not that they're available, but... Who would you cherry pick in our own organization, put in that position, and then go coach and develop to do that job in a world-class way? And that gets us to a point, we know this person or these people. We can talk about the skills and why they made the choices that they did. And it really helps us talk about the position, not from these shiny skill sets. And it forces us to think about the coaching, the learning, and the development that's going to be required to take someone who Already knows the company, knows how we communicate, knows our culture, knows the product. It's going to be a lot faster to, to 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 teach them the couple of skills they need than it is to you know teach them the culture and the product and the people and the communication. So it's it's it can sometimes be a mental exercise because we do go outside to get talent. Sure, but it's a very healthy exercise and it forces them to think about that development and coaching that they're going to need to do.
1: Development and coaching, let's hang here for a second because you work with a lot of external organizations, right? So of course you run yours, but your company is based on helping others optimize theirs. Do you see, or or let me rephrase this, a common theme I see, especially in large organizations, and I did consulting for a while where I got to see these, is the larger organizations understand coaching is important, but don't in their bones, believe in the time it takes to coach. So that's where I see some disconnect. It's like, we know we need to help you grow in this area, but because we have so many deliverables, I need somebody who I don't need to grow in this area. I need somebody who has already done this area. And to go back to your analogy of survivor, I think of it like this. If I'm on a deserted Island and I've got 10 people, I'm going to ask, how many of you know how to hunt food? And if there's one person, they're the one hunting. I'm not going to try and help somebody else, right, become a hunter. How many of you know how to build shelter? Oh, you have? You're doing that, right? So, th- like, I'm not saying it's the right thought process. I'm just curious on what you see in other organizations. Are they actually coaching? Saying, we're going to give you the time to develop. We know you have the intangibles. I can give you the tangible. Because in my experience, a lot of times they say that, but then they want the tangible much faster,
2: yeah, so time is a cruel master. And you you brought time up. You know, these big these big companies talk about it but don't give it the time it deserves. I think talking about time is 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 important. I think organizations that have a mandate to perform now at all costs. You know, think of a private equity company. You know, they've got they, they took they took an investment. They said they were going to do great things. The private equity company wants to do great things in, in three years so they can sell the company in five. Mm. So there's this huge time pressure. You know, often private equity backed companies have so much time pressure that they want to go hire you know, the best and brightest, spare no expense, get the best recruiters, bring me, if you need a product person, get me the best product person. If you need you know, the best salesperson, get me the best salesperson. And this time pressure means you have to win now. Whereas there are other companies that have a much longer term perspective that they can take the time to develop. And I'll, because I'm a you know former coach, I use a lot of sports analogies, but I, I do think the sports teams that have the, the mandate to win now sometimes do, but then they trade their entire farm system to get those free agents, to get that you know star player. and they, they, they barter the future. For the present, whereas I think that the, the, the great organizations that win year in and year out have great farm systems. They recruit good people, they train and develop, and they, a lot of their stars come from their own inner uh, machinery. So I, I, do think, I do think great organizations over time invest in their people, develop their people, because it's it's just so much more consistent to get great talent if you if you farm it yourself than this bright shiny object. They may be the best product person, they may be the best salesperson, but a lot of people look good on paper, and a lot of good, people look good when they're presented by a recruiter.
1: I just want that to sink in. I'll tell you one lesson, an unseen, unforeseen lesson I've learned in this podcast is. Anyone can make themselves sound amazing. It's actually been a really cool practice because we see a lot of, you know, hey, have this person on the show. Um, And I'm like, wait a sec, I get 10 of these a day and all of them sound like one in a millions. How is that possible? You know what I mean? And I just think it's really important to recognize exactly what you're saying is, look, a lot of things get exaggerated. Uh, A lot of things get highlighted. You can say almost anything, but it doesn't always translate into all the things you need to be successful.
2: Chris, let let me let me do a tiny vignette. Our our head of sales, uh, this guy, Jim Spiritolozi, he he loves recruiting low extroversion or think of them as, you know, more introverted salespeople. And I'm like, why do you want to do that? He says, well, the, the 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 extroverted salespeople sound great in the interview, but when you look at the data, talk time is really important. High extroverted people talk too much on a sales call; they dominate. They dominate the discussion. Where he likes to hire introverts, people who will listen and understand the needs of the person who will hopefully buy. So it, it's it's funny this high extroversion salespeople sound great in the interview and then talk too much during the sales calls wow. and low low introvert or you know introverts are you know don't do as well in the interview but crush we use this software called gong.io and it measures all of your talk times yep. you're listening how often you cut someone off and the the introverts crush the extroverts uh, on these metrics so that's like the science of Dream Teams, which is the name of the book, is using yeah. data like that to say, listen, I'm going to take a pass on extroverted salespeople. Now, there are relationship sales. Uh, a, f- a good friend of mine owns a beer company, and uh, selling, getting someone to carry your beer on tap at a restaurant is a relationship sale. You need the extroverted salespeople. So I'm not saying don't ever hire extroverted salespeople, but if you've got a technical sale... The introverts crush the extroverts, and you can predict it.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. I'm so glad you said that because I'm aware of the, the research, but I didn't necessarily tie personality to that, right? And and I think that's, again, what your book, what your company is really all about. It's We have to stop guessing at how do we solve this problem. We're in a world where data analytics things like that can help us solve these problems, these people problems. And I know for me, sometimes there's an aversion to putting analytics and people in the same sentence it drives me nuts. Cause I like to see people for people, not analytics and whatnot, but I think you take a different approach. Tell us a little bit about the approach you take and how it helps build these dream teams.
2: The art of talent optimization and the science of talent optimization. It's, it's a new discipline and, if even a casual sports fan is familiar with this discipline, they they do it with their hometown team. If the quarterback threw three interceptions last Sunday, on Monday morning, they're calling for the person's head. They want the backup to be given a shot, or they want a tank so they can recruit the next great quarterback out of the college ranks. So they're applying, you know, they're looking at analytics, they're looking at the box scores, they're looking at the stats, the speeds, the features of, of quarterback ratings, if you will. and they're making quick decisions based on that data. They do it in their sports world, but then in their work world, they're fine working with a coworker who mails it in or with with people who dominate meetings just so they can hear themselves talk or, in toxic cultures or toxic teams, they don't apply the same rigor. We're asking people to, to apply the same rigor that you would in, in other aspects of your life. You know, maybe buying a car, looking at the consumer reports, maybe, you know, staffing your fantasy sports teams or just being a casual fan to your work world where, you know, unstructured interviewing, you know, human bias is just not cutting it. We need more discipline to the most important thing in business, which is the, the people who execute on strategy.
1: So let's talk about that. How do you apply the same rigor that we could to something like athletics? It becomes, it seems counterintuitive almost, right? So when I think about a quarterback, their job is statistical. I mean, sports, when you look at sabermetrics, right? I mean, and, and I'm not only a big baseball fan, but a big golf fan, they're there's a lot of talk now about the science of golf. And there's I just saw this article about a guy who has really broken it down to numbers. And it's kind of fascinating. And the golf purists, of course, hate it. But it in these physical feats where there is a defined outcome based off of a, a certain physical performance, I could understand statistics being so obvious. How do those translate? to a business, to a talent world where things are much more ambiguous?
2: It's, it's ambiguous because we, we don't measure enough. We really need to measure ah. performance. When you, when you think of, um, so StatCast is the system that went into baseball stadiums that started measuring exit velocity, exit angle, spin rate. Before we had those measurements, we didn't measure spin rate. We didn't have access to it. So you, you actually, in, in fact, have to measure Behavior. You have to measure performance. You have to link performance, um, you know, with with a rubric or, you know, framework or structure so that everyone is rating similarly. That if Chris gives if you give your direct report a four out of a scale of five um, and, you know, I'm a tougher grader and I'm giving that same person a three or even a two. I mean, we have to we have to align this because this this performance data is is core to what we're doing I mean the the idea that we quarterback ratings are highly correlated with quarterback performance that's why we look at that number hmm. we we should say employee performance should be related to the outcomes you know are we getting what we need out of our uh, out of our people our teams our divisions and and n- not many people use that rigor in and how they look at their employee base.
1: I think a lot of the reason why is the lack of understanding what are the deliverables that we're expecting from people. So I'm curious, it could either be at your company or a company you've worked with. What's an example of a softer skilled position? And I hesitate to say that, but I mean something that's not as measurable as how many sales did you close or, you know, how much money did you bring in, right? Uh, Something that might be like an engineer who is designing digital products or something like that, or an HR person, or, you know, there's, there's a a million. What's an example of how you can take those sort of less defined roles and make it defined enough where we can evaluate the fit?
2: It it is difficult. Let's take, let's take a product developer, you know, someone who's developing software and... Maybe you like the UI that they designed, and maybe I hate it, and, and, and that's, that's sort of like arguing about colors. It's, it's very difficult. So product is a, is, a, is a fun one to talk about because it's a little bit amorphous, and it's a little bit vague. You know, who's, who's good at developing product? Who's not? You, you need to look at data. Um, their managers um, need to often rate their, uh, their performance, not just annually, but you know, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and it doesn't have to be complicated. It can look like the five smiley faces at customs. You know, is it a really smiley face? Is it a mm-hmm. kind of smiley face? Is it moderate? Is it a little frown? Is it a giant frown? If you do that consistently, you start getting a uh, you know the fabric of the trends on these individuals. And you know, not everyone trends perfect fives every day. You know, you have bad bad periods or a bad project. But there's there's other data. There's 360 degree reviews. Um, which should never be linked to pay. You know, this is about hmm. personal development. There are engagement surveys, there are coaching exercises that managers should should take them through um, quarterly, at least, about you know career development and gaps and things that you're working on. That you start creating this portfolio of information on this person, and maybe it comes out that you said you're great at running meetings you're great at getting teams to finish their work on time. But it turns out your UI is terrible. Like you're 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 just not very good at UI, which doesn't mean you get fired. It might be like, maybe you shouldn't use your power and authority to dominate UI. Maybe you should let one of your people on your team who's really gifted at UI do that piece. Mm. And you can keep doing the rest really well. You know, you're great at running meetings. You're great at, you know, Keeping keeping everyone the trains running on time. So, if you don't have the data to have those conversations, you can't guide people. You can't coach them in the right way.
1: I like that. I was just thinking about. Well, let's let's go here, and then we'll get into the individuals. So, for those listening, you know, I want to talk about if you're not running a talent team or doing hiring, the flip side of this equation. But let's say we are running a business, looking for talent, uh, wanting to optimize talent. There's a lot of ways you could be a sales team lead you could be a lot of things where we need to do this where do they start let's say i'm i'm i read your book and i'm like okay i like this and i happen to be able to have a conversation with you i say mike i'm trying to take my team and up their game based on a little bit of data a little bit more attention as opposed to just business as usual What's one thing I could do to start me on the right path?
2: Starting to run a world-class team or develop a world-class team or build a world-class team, you have to start with yourself. Like If you are not really self-aware about what you are good at and what your gaps are, that you, you will never truly be able to create a world-class team because people won't want to follow you. The self-aware individuals, you know, everyone has, you know, things that they're amazing at and things that they're working on. You need to be open and transparent with those things with your team and actually ask them for help. You're like, it's almost like an instruction manual. You're like, hey, I'm really good at this stuff. I'm not as good at this stuff. And and this stuff can really take me out. Can you say you say you reported to me, Chris? I'm like, hey, Chris, I don't always listen, but I do want to I do wanna listen to you. So when I'm not listening, I need you to nudge me and and be like, hey Mike, you're not listening again. I actually give my team a safety word. Mm. Ticonderoga. If they say Ticonderoga, it means I'm not listening. And 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 I'm like, I'm sorry. I you know, you made me think of something and I wandered away. Please, please reverse, you know, 45 seconds. I'd I'd love to pick that up again. And if you don't recruit your if you don't work on self, you'll never be able to give I won't be able to credibly give you feedback. Because you're like, you're not interested in improving yourself. Why should I let you improve me?
0: And now a quick break for one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Felix Gray, the blue light glasses that started it all. Five years ago, Felix Gray realized our eyes weren't meant to look at screens all day and designed glasses to make daily screen time more comfortable and the workday more productive. Now more than ever, Americans are spending more time on computers, phones, tablets, gaming devices, and so many other sources of blue light. Felix Grey glasses are not like other blue light lenses. Felix Grey lenses filter 15 times more blue light that can make screen time tough on eyes and disruptive to sleep. Felix Grey offer classic frame styles made from acetate and hand-finished for a durable, lightweight, and really comfortable pair of glasses. Non-prescription and prescription available. Check them out now, felixgrayglasses.com slash smart. If you can feel your screen time, or if you're not sure if blue light glasses are right for you, start with the best in blue light. Try Felix Gray. With their 30-day money-back guarantee, there's nothing to lose but eye strain. Listen, you've been there, I've been there, staring at either my laptop for too long or my cell phone. When you start getting sore, tired, or itchy, watery eyes, or maybe you start getting a headache, if you've experienced any of that, you need to check out Felix Gray. Get yourself a pair of glasses made for the 21st century and designed for modern, hardworking eyes. You have nothing to lose except maybe eye strain. Go to slash smart for the best blue light glasses on the market. That's F E L I X G R E. A Y glasses.com slash smart, free shipping, free returns, free exchanges, Felix gray glasses.com slash smart. And now back to the episode.
1: Gosh, I I have so many things I want to ask you on it. I'm looking at the time here. All right. So we have to start with ourselves as a leader. We have to think about it. We have to be willing to accept it. Another thing I was curious about when it comes to evaluating blind spots and things like that, I find, I know some of my blind spots and I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, in my current role, I really like helping develop people. I mean, I will coach you. I will go down with the ship. I mean, it's one of the only things I care about is individuals modifying behavior to get the results they want. That's what I say. I don't care what the results are, but I'll help you get them coaching, training, whatever. I also run some programs and I'm not the most detail oriented, like every I dot the I cross the T send out every message perfectly because I think human relationships are a little messy and I like that emails perfectly crafted, not my thing. And I've kind of decided I don't really ever know if I want them to be my thing. So how do we deal with that when it's like, well, this role requires that and I just really don't want to grow there because I want to focus on some strengths and some joy in this other part.
2: Yeah. I mean, this, you're talking you, straight up the fairway behavioral preferences that there. If if you are out of, if you have to work out of preference, it's uh, very difficult. So we actually measure, um, we, we measure a behavioral drive called formality formality is highly correlated with attention to detail my my guess chris i haven't measured you but you're probably going to be lower in formality which has right. a lot of gifts you're more creative unstructured but at the same time if if i asked you to proofread this letter before it goes to print you'd be like please don't make me do that
1: <laughs> and, exactly
2: and and what would in in fact happen is you will do it you know for a period but it's it's almost like writing with your opposite hand when yes. you write with your opposite hand it one it's slower two it it it's not as legible it's not as good and if i asked you to do it all day your hand would cramp because those muscles aren't even used to doing that so you can work out of preference but it it just takes so much out of you and then you would go home to your spouse how was your day it was terrible mike made me write with my left hand all day and <laughs> And and we do this with people unintentionally. You take people that are, as an example, low attention to detail and ask them to do detail-oriented work. So it's really about fit. It doesn't mean, Chris, you're a bad person. You you are who you are, but there are going to be jobs that are good or bad fits for you and your, mm-hmm. and your considerable gifts.
1: Yeah, and that makes sense. I was curious on that because as we were talking about coaching and things, it's like people, I think, will – only want to be coached on the things they want to develop. And so understanding your blind spots clearly important, but also recognizing, do I want to fill those for who I want to become? And I think there's some areas where it's okay to say no. There are others where you're going to need it to succeed or get where you want to go. And understanding that is also another level of self-awareness.
2: Well, I, I, I guess that your attention to detail is, is, only good on things that you find are important or that have right. your name on it right so I, I guess you need to find someone's motivations that i'm like hey hey, chris this is this is really important you know and this is why it's important and you might put the attention to detail required for that letter uh that i unfortunately asked you to proofread hmm. but you know i, I so i think you know, even good coaches will understand your strengths and weaknesses, and say, "I'm asking you to go out of preference, but it's important for this period of time." And by the way, I I won't I won't stay on that. Um, there was a great conversation I had with uh, Tim Gillickson. He used to be Pete Sampras's coach, hmm. and you know, Pete Sampras, for the for the tennis players out there, he was one of the greatest serve and volley tennis players ever. You know, and what is serve and volley? You have this awesome serve, and then you rush the net you sort of cut the other person's return off and you you make it very difficult for them. And, you know, people who looked at his game objectively would say, wow, Pete Sanfres doesn't have great ground strokes. He should work on his ground strokes. And in talking to Tim Gillickson, he goes, no. He says, that's, that's not it. Yes, we work on Pete's ground strokes. Yes. He says, but guess what? If his first serve is in at a high percentage, he always wins. If it's in a medium percentage, he's... Beatable. And if it's a low percentage, he's very vulnerable. So we work on his first serve. That's what we work on. That is set up. His great strength of his first serve sets up the whole thing. So I often coach people play the game to your strengths. I want, if Chris, if you report to me, I want you to play the game that we're playing together in Chris's strengths. Because if I can get you in your strengths, not only will you be better, but you're going to be happier, more energized, you'll like me better you know, you'll recruit people to my team because you're like, hey, Mike's great to work for. We always get to, you know, play to our strengths, whether you know it consciously or not. And it's it's such a powerful tool and mechanism to be a strong manager.
1: Well, that actually is a perfect lead-in. One of the things I want to talk to you about in your book, The Science of Dream Teams, and we've covered some of it, it's really about, it's it's a holistic approach to building better teams. And yes, it might be focused on the person building the teams, but the teams are comprised of people who wanna be there. And one of the things that got me is the subtitle, How Talent Optimization Can Drive Engagement, Productivity, and Happiness. That's the differentiator to me. Because frankly, when I hear people talk about assessments and data and uh, 360s and do it weekly, all I hear is corporate speak for like, you know, uh, ride your people harder, right? Like tell them numbers and all these things. Um, because that's how we're going to get productivity. And and a lot of this is my bias. I spent a lot of time thinking about and teaching the difference between effectiveness and efficiency, massive difference. I think too many organizations drive towards efficiency at the cost of effectiveness. But this happiness piece, tell us how the individuals out there who are trying to find their fit, who want stability in their careers in terms of financial and support their family, but want to enjoy it, not slackers. I'm not talking people who want a free ride, people who want to execute, but want to enjoy it. How can they use what you talk about to fit into these teams and become the dream team? You know, be the Pippin to the Jordan if you're not the Jordan.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really interesting question. And there are so many more employees than there are employers. So you, you can we could improve the world by making sure that every employee tries to find the the, the, the job that unlocks their happiness. And the, the, what's in it for the company is if you fully and truly engage your employees and get them in a role that they love, you get discretionary effort. It's not about necessarily efficiency. You get more. You know your employees will do more for you. They'll listen to a podcast on the way to work. They will. They they will take a call on on a weekend just because they they care. They're bought in, and and it's a lot about a lot about fit. And we our mission is 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 better work, better world. That when you when you truly get someone who's a a good fit for their job, that that plays to their behavioral preferences. That they have a good relationship with their manager because they've they've learned how to talk to each other and the joys and frustrations of that. That they they've they've learned their team. That are, is it a homogenous team? Is it a heterogeneous team? Are they an outlier? You know how does that how does that work? You know making sure the team is a good fit for the job that we make them do the work to be done, and that there's a good fit for culture. They go home happier, and they're a better spouse. They're a better sibling. They're they're a better parent to homeschool their kid. They're, they're even better members of their community. And you get the the company gets this discretionary effort because you work people work harder, and it's it's proven you know engaged people work harder um, and longer. So it, it, it's in everyone's best interest to make sure there's fit. That way, you have happy, engaged employees, and don't keep like if I kept you working on your attention to detail writing letters I mean you 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 would quit in three months I just couldn't Mm. keep you any longer than that but I'm like wow Chris is a talented person let me do this you know with with him and unlock all of this considerable potential
1: how much of that onus is on the individual because I think sometimes I'm just laughing at this internally right when you go through the process of trying to get a job You read a job description that means absolutely nothing. This is not all the time, but it's, let's just say it's a general, right? You read a job description that isn't the job. Uh, Even the person who wrote it half the time is just trying to please somebody else. So they say, yep, good job description. You go interview and you can't necessarily question it because that means you're not bought in. So you tell them how much you want to be there and all the things you're supposed to say. Um, And again, I'm generalizing here, but... You, you don't often know the salary going into it. You know, you, you, you get into this agreement cause you now have to get to the end. All these tactics say, get to the end, get the offer and then determine it and then negotiate all these things. Right. Um, you get the job and now you have to prove yourself in the job. So what do you want me to do? I'll do it type thing, et cetera. I just feel like it's a long way to get to the point where you're like, okay, I'm confident enough. Here are my strengths. Here's what you need. Here's what I don't want to do. You know, so I'm wondering from the perspective of the employee, how might they go about quickening the curve to get into a position where they feel they're a good fit and they're motivated to be there?
2: Most of the time when someone comes up to me and says, I'm unhappy, um, which is usually, you know, you're working from a position of weakness. They're willing to take any, any job, um, my first reaction to them, it's easier to make your current job better than it is to find a, a shiny new job. And then you have a conversation about how could we make your job better? And when you do that, you uncover all sorts of little nuggets about what they like and don't like about their job, which gives you a sense to guide them. You're in the wrong job. You know, maybe mm-hmm. there's another job here. But then if if they're really open, if you have that open dialogue, then we can find out, you know, let's just say you're a purpose uh, and cause driven human and you're working for an investment bank. And you're like, (laughs) you know, they, you're like, you're not going to find that here. It, it, it does not really exist. If your mission is to make a lot of money, you're in the right spot. If, if your mission is to change the world, you're, you, you should not work for this investment bank. So when you, when you find that fit, you can then guide them in the right direction. And, and I said when you start with self-awareness, there is some onus on the employee to be self-aware about what they like and don't like about their job and think pretty critically about how to make their life better, make their job better. It, just, it's, it is difficult um, to, to do, but they, they can't just go from a place of desperation. I hate my job. I'll, I'll be willing to take anything at any comp mm-hmm. that you're just going to go from misery to misery. They have to really find out what is it I want to do with my life. And, of course, this is one of these difficult questions. You know, kids go through college, and they, they're, when they're honest, they're like, I have no idea what I want to do. No clue. At, at, yeah. No clue. No clue. So it's funny. You mentioned the job description. We use a machine learning algorithm to tune job descriptions. So let's just say we are trying to hire a controller, which is a data-detail-driven job. You know, you're a lot of, lot of uh, stress often that you write the job description and then you test it in machine learning and saying you're not going to attract the right people that you need behaviorally so you can tune the job description to make sure that you're attracting the right people I love If you write that. some flowery job description for a controller you're, you know like that they're like do you like structure and discipline and precision and they're like yes you know like, yeah. you know you need to and, and I would read that and be like no so for sure And that's perfect. You don't want me to apply to be controller at your company, but you want the person who likes that job description
1: to do. That's such a great point. And that's actually, I love that you brought that up. That's a perfect example of what we were talking about. There's plenty of areas where people don't see how data or analytics or tech can be implemented into making better teams. Job description, like ground zero for that, you know? I always laugh at those. I, I just don't understand how those are even a thing. I really don't. Most job descriptions, it's insanity, but- I digress.
2: So I, I tell people, no one actually wants science. They just want science to work for them. Huh? So, you know, the, you know, people are like, oh, I don't need science. I, but I, I want science to work because it, it makes my car not crash, you know, and it does, you know, it, it does other things for me. But they yeah. don't they, they don't really want it in their day to day. They just want it to work. So when when we do our job well, pe- people don't know that the job descriptions are tuned by machine learning algorithms for behavior. They just go, I like that job description. And then they go, wow. And I actually am going to like this job. Mm -hmm. They just want it to work.
1: Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Actually, it's a great paradigm shift because I tend to, I get a little shiver with all the science stuff because I'm so human based. Like I just, you know, but to your point, I also dislike oftentimes the human output of job descriptions. So what's that say? You know what I mean. That's I I lo- I, I really like that. You should be um, a
2: professional job
1: description <laughs> writer. <laughs> that would be like writing with my left hand. There's a couple of things I wanted to cover that might be you know we've we've had this I believe kind of very linear and 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 path that we could follow in, in this conversation. But there's a couple that have stuck out to me that I had to ask before our time's up. One is going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. You mentioned. Um, one of your first roles, and it was the first time you were as excited about business or anything as you were about the sport you were in, um, sailing. Look, this is a very selfish question, but I know at least a quarter of our audience is is in the same boat. I find that people who are into athletics, it's at least for me, like I can speak for myself. It's something that I've chased for so long, which is how do I get that same passion out of the thing I do for a living? Um, Now, I wasn't an Olympian or anything, but from an obsession perspective, I probably thought the same for a good portion of my life. How did you find that? Like, What was it about business that sparked the same real inner drive as the sport that you've given so much of your life to?
2: I think that's going to be a very personal question for for each person. And mm-hmm. I I was the type of athlete that I like competition. I like games. If you taught me how to play bridge, I would want to beat you at bridge. And and, and not 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 in just the you know 10th game. I want to do it in the game 2 right after I learn. I to... <laughs> and okay, so that's a problem too. Like I could be overly competitive. But I know a lot of athletes, especially the endurance athletes, you know, triathletes, they're, they're not in it for the competition. They're in it for the, the personal drive, you know, something that motivates them, this goal to push themselves really hard. So their answer to that question is going to be very different than, than mine. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to be better in game number two. They want to be the best in game 100. They're taking a very long view of, of this so for me, it was business was a great place, you know, to play games and and measure and be competitive. Things like market share, uh, things like growth, but that's not going to be motivating for everyone. Someone might hear that and go, "Oh, Mike's Mike's a you know high A psycho that just <laughs> just wants." And and you go, "Yeah, maybe." Um, But I really think it it comes down to personal motivation. Business has so much to offer. I went back. I was trained as a geochemist. I went back and went to my, uh, at at Brown University, I went back to the Brown Geology Department and made the argument to a bunch of scientists that this is a great degree for business. And they were all looking at me, blinking, going, what? I I thought I was going to need to get a PhD and teach. Or become an environmental consultant. I'm like, no, it's a great degree for business. It's all about learning systems. It's 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 about mm-hmm. analyzing and discovering the unknown. It's about making hypotheses and testing them. I'm like, this is this is a great degree for business. I don't think I convinced many of them of this. Um, you haven't but,
1: convinced me yet, but what do I know?
2: <laughs> well, you not you, you weren't a, yeah. you weren't a geologist.
1: No, and I don't know anything about it, but I believe you. <laughs>
2: But I, I do think each person needs needs to find out what, what motivates them and they can explore that because it's such a big field.
1: I like what you said there, though. I realize saying that it's individualized, it makes sense, but the outcome is even though it's individualized, look at what is it about that thing. Maybe it's athletics, maybe it's music, maybe it's whatever, because it's typically not the same thing. Like you were saying, right? You want to win... On two because you want to beat the other person. For me, athletics was, it was never, it's never been about the other person. I think that's why I wasn't great. It was more about like, why could I not do that? Right. It was increasing my own abilities. If I can't, it doesn't matter what it is. If you gave me a a racket or a club, like if I'm not getting better every single attempt, then that's my fault. It's very ownership based. You know what I mean? And so, how can I take that? It's this self-growth as opposed to competition or long-term. I've never thought about it like that. That's what I appreciate about your answer and why these questions, what I love about it is like, it might seem like, look, everybody has to learn it on their own, but there's that wisdom within your answer that helps bring about a potential to look at our own lives differently.
2: And, and that, is, that is the self-awareness piece, that the, the introspection that each individual who wants to improve their job, if they're an individual contributor, or be a better manager, to, to really understand what motivates me, you know, what am I good at? What am I not as good at? It is uh, this framework, front of T-shirt, back of T-shirt. The front of T-shirt is all of the things you've been told your whole life that you're good at. And you've almost every job you've gotten is because of your front of T-shirt. The back of T-shirt is sort of this dark side, all the things you're not so good at. And most people don't want to talk about them. They don't even want to know what they are. They minimize them. They situationalize them. They're like, oh, I only do that once in a while. And And you have to go on this discovery of what's on the back of my T-shirt. And when you do... You, you deco- you're like, you're not going to get rid of these things. You can only just identify them, their triggers, and control them so they don't rear their ugly head you know, too often. And mm. it's this self-awareness, this deep introspection, which will help people find the job for them or what, what the, why they get joy out of sport if they do or how they can be a better manager, boss, leader, um, spouse, um, sibling, so it, this, is, this is at the root cause. And i got to give Jim Allen, who's a partner at Bain & Company in the UK, for that framework. That's his. Hmm. And uh, I've really grabbed onto it and adopted it and, and, and kind of love it.
1: What you were just saying there about introspection I like because I want to tie it back to something you mentioned earlier, which is if you are purpose-motivated uh, purpose and you go to an investment bank, you might have a, a problem. And I was laughing because it resonated. I Out of college, I went into finance because it's really easy to say, you want to make money. And so I literally took the job that paid the most that I could find. And it paid great. And I freaking hated it. And not, you know, my bosses were incredible. Some of the best people I've ever known. Uh, I didn't know why, right? It's just amazing how, and this is me. Some people do it at 10 years old. Some people never do, but that's like a learned thing for so many of us is to understand our own individual motivators purpose, as opposed to just accept societally or, you know, um, relationship imposed motivators. You know what I mean? And then what you were saying about, you're in a, on the defensive and how do you transition? I had to quit work for a year and figure out what I wanted to do. And a few years later, I'm making less than I made day one out of college and I'm as happy as ever because I'm in a nonprofit trying to change the world. You know what I mean? It's just that journey is the part that gets you later in life to be more confident in your skin. And I just think it's an important message because if younger people, and I've coached a lot of them, don't think they should. Ha- they should. They should question. They don't know that it's okay to like get it wrong.
2: My my wife and I ask each other this question all the time: like, how would you double your happiness? And every person's answer is is unique to them if they're going to be honest with themselves. And oftentimes, their first first response is: is Wait, I'm very happy. I couldn't double my happiness. Like, listen, this isn't a competition. Just how would you double your happiness? <laughs> And you know, for some people, it's making more money. Um, and they, maybe they need it. They're like, "Hey, I'm trying to get out of debt. That would really make me happy." I appreciate that. For other people, it's a very different answer. For you, it was, it was making less money, but find purpose. And this question is so important for everyone to ask themselves: How would you double your happiness? And it, it comes into the work world so often, because we spend 40, 50 hours a week at work. and if mm-hmm. you're not happy at work, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, to be happy. And oftentimes the answers to how would I double my happiness is modifying something in your work career. So uh, I would encourage your audience to, you know, with the with the people who are important to you, ask yourself this question and try and be really honest with yourselves. It'll, it'll be amazing.
1: I love that question. Thank you for that, Mike. Well, listen, what we've talked about is all encompassing, but there's a few things I want to highlight to those listening. So Mike's new book, which comes out as, around the time this will air, which early July, right? July, 7, July 6th, 6th, something yeah. like 6th. Yeah. the science of dream teams, how talent optimization can drive engagement, productivity and happiness. Talking about things like leadership, what makes great teams, how can we use science and analytics to create those? And for everyone listening, you'll notice like what I wanted to push Mike on was not just for the benefit of their, the employer, but for me, far more for the benefit of the employee. And I think we've we've covered that. Mike, before we go, a couple of things. One, anything you want to leave, you know, the listeners with on a topic that I think can be very personalized. We all work, right? So um, and then two, where else can we find you? What do you have going on out there?
2: You know, there's uh, if, if you want to take a behavioral assessment and uh, sort of you know, in, in the book, we've uh, we've created a URL so that you can take this assessment and and do some introspection about what are my behavioral preferences. Go to dreamteams.io, and uh, you'll you'll get access to you know take a a free behavioral assessment. That uh, and it's fun. It's a fun thing for people to do. They do it themselves and their spouse, and you know they can talk about it. It's sort of like the what color is your parachute. Oh, I'm because so I in really,
1: that. I love those it, things. By the way, <laughs> I wrote yeah, it down. And, I'm in.
2: It, yeah, and you know what? It, what's interesting, and by the way, you won't be marketed to. We we, <sighs> we put a block on on all of that from happening. And 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 the idea is, I really think this starts with self. You ask me what's the first thing someone should do. It's about going on this self awareness journey. Whether it's how could I be a better leader, how could I be a better mom, dad, how could I be a better sibling, and and it gets to how could I be happier in my job. That that's the most important thing. We're going to create a better world through better workplaces, but the goal is the better world, and if everyone's happier in what they do, we're, we get there faster.
1: Such a believer. I love that. So we've got Dream Team Dream Teams with an S.
2: Dream Teams with an S.
1: dot Dream Teams. dot io. Uh, anywhere else, are you on social or, um, you write in other places or are you pretty much back to focusing on the business after that book's been written?
2: I'm focusing on the business. I, you know, yeah. I, I had something to say. Um, I don't always have something to say. Uh, I'm pretty prolific on LinkedIn. Um, but, nice. uh, I don't have a lot of, uh, I do have a great podcast that I do the, uh, it, it's called dream teams and I get to interview a lot of leaders uh, which is on uh, the predictive uh, slash dream teams. And how uh, long have
1: you been doing that? Been
2: doing that a few years. And, okay. uh, I, you know, I've gotten to interview some really interesting people. Uh, um, Jim cook, the founder of uh, Boston beer company yeah. was probably one of the better interviews there. Um, he's, he's been a client of ours for 25 years and, and, uh, he actually uses, he used, he used a, the behavioral assessment on his second wife, uh, on their second date. He's like, would you mind if I gave you this, uh, behavioral assessment? I was like, that's pretty saucy.
1: I mean, uh, the fact that she didn't run, I'm like, okay, you, you passed the test. I'm not actually going to give that.
2: to you. <laughs> The beautiful part
1: is Jim cook
2: is massively successful. Founded, yeah. you know, Samuel Adams changed beer, beer. forever. Yeah. Uh, thankfully. Yeah. 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 His wife is far more successful than he is. She, uh, patented and invented the process to get cord blood uh for uh when when babies are born to to save those stem cells so wow. like he's what i would call badass she's more badass so wow i think she had enough personal confidence to be like i'll take your little assessment
1: that's awesome oh that's great well mike again the book is The Science of Dream Teams. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed this. I, I believe in what you're doing. I believe in everything you were saying about if we want to change our own happiness and those around us, it's going to play a big role of how we are at work. So appreciate the research, the thought uh, that you put in all this. Thanks for Chris, coming thank, on the show.
2: Th- thank you. Uh, great discussion. I really enjoyed it.
0: Another interview in the books. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mike Zanni. Mike's book, The Science of Dream Teams, How Talent Optimization Can Drive Engagement, Productivity, and Happiness, can be found wherever books are sold. All right, let's get to the quick housekeeping items so that you can get to your next podcast, whether it's another episode of Smart People Podcast or whatever's in your playlist. If you ever wanna reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you're in the giving mood and you want to support the show, you can head over to patreon.com slash smart people podcast, become a patron over there and help us out monetarily on a monthly basis. If you're already a patron, thank you so much for supporting the show. We truly do appreciate it. And it's this community that's going to allow us to move back into weekly episodes. So stay tuned for that because we're pretty excited. And if you're just looking to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.